While it is certainly true that growing cannabis can still lead to a prison sentence in some states, home growing for personal consumption is exploding across the country. Most states have enacted some sort of home grow allotment with their licensing of cannabis companies, and in states with licensed cannabis but no home growing, like Washington State, the enforcement is close to zero for individuals just growing a few plants. The rapid rise in personal growth has been an epic boon for horticulture companies of all flavors, and lights and nutrients and seeds are all being sold at a rapid pace on the internet. Folks are more openly sharing what they have grown too, on social media, with neighbors, and at barbecues. Personal grows are an essential part of cannabis normalization. But where are all these home growers growing? No doubt, if you listen to Shaping Fire, you know that we support outdoor summertime grows because they use the sunshine instead of electric lights. But not everyone has access to the outside. Many patients don't have the mobility to get outside. Many apartment dwellers have no yard at all. And even many folks who do have yards still don't feel comfortable growing cannabis in the yard because of neighbors or local kids or simple space concerns. One thing all of these cannabis consumers can turn to is the indoor growing tent. These tents create an artificial indoor environment that can be climate controlled especially to grow cannabis. They have reflective interiors to move the light around and fine mesh zippers and flaps that keep the light inside the tent. They are clandestine, compact, and pretty affordable to get started with. Grow tents have been an essential aspect of cannabis culture for decades because they can make the indoor gardener self-sufficient, and self-sufficiency is a universally accepted human value. If you want to learn about cannabis health, business, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items for the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we're giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive that newsletter. So go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I'm your host, Shango Lose. Today, my guest is Jeremy Silva, founder of Build a Soil, a horticulture supply retailer in Montrose, Colorado, and online at buildasoil.com. Jeremy studies best practices for home-growing tents more than anyone I know, and you can watch his experiments live online as they happen on the Build-A-Soil Instagram account. Jeremy's background helping medical cannabis patients with their grows and getting friends hooked on worm castings from his compost bin has served him well as a cannabis horticulture educator. Jeremy also practices jujitsu, which helps him understand energy relationships, and I found that it often finds its way into his explanations of soil and plants. Today, we're going to talk about growing cannabis for personal consumption at home using a cultivation tent. Welcome to the show, Jeremy. Hey, thanks for having me on today. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for making the time. So let's go right into talking about the size of tent, right? Um, you know, a lot of people struggle a little bit like, oh my gosh, how tall do I need to have my tent? Or how, how big does it have to be to be worthwhile at all? And normally when I'm talking to people about setting up a tent, I just say get a tent that's as big as the space that you have because no matter how big your tent is, you're going to wish you had a bigger tent in most cases. And so, um, you know, I know that you've got people coming to you all the time who are about to initiate their first tent, what kind of advice do you give them? Oh man, these are really good questions. So I am similar to you. I say, hey, get the biggest one that you can afford based on your size. And typically most customers are saying, hey, it's going to be in a bedroom, a garage, a closet. 
somewhere where usually it's something um, beyond the tent that is going to frame in their size. And a lot of times that might be at minimum just ceiling height, even if you have an open bedroom. And so um, when you're looking at a grow tent, we offer the gorilla tent. There's a million tents out there. And I think that most all of them will work. Um, but the gorilla has some extensions on height. And so that would be important for you to look at. The other thing that some of our customers forget, um, and I know I didn't really think about it the first time I bought a tent, is that it takes extra space in your room to actually construct and build the tent. And normally it takes an extra person. I'm pretty good at doing it by myself if it's small with a step stool and being patient. But um, sometimes with a low ceiling or very tight space, you have to actually consider how you're going to construct it and have enough space to wrap the outer material around it. Um, beyond that, if space is not really the limitation and you're wondering, hey, I've got an open room, how do I consider what's too tall, too short, and what's optimum for environment, then I would be questioning um, what type of light you're gonna use and what the budget looks like for controlling the environment. And that would be my secondary dictator of purchase. Primary would be the size that I have. If I have unlimited size, then secondary, I'm gonna compare my budget. And if I already have a grow light and it's very, maybe it's old school, puts out a lot of heat, I'm gonna need to go on the taller side of the tent. If I have an option to get a newer age, cooler running uh, grow light, I'm going to not consider the height as a main limiting factor. So one of the things I wanna consider throughout this whole series is using holistic decision-making and that means looking at the weakest link. That should guide you in the process of making those decisions. Right on. And you know, uh, a lot of people, you know, they, 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 they think that they may need to add a little bit of, you know, extra size so that they can get in and move around in their tent. And what I tell people is, is if you're planning on getting into the tent, you're probably not thinking through correctly because in a perfect world we should not be getting into our tents because we're going to be bringing in lots of contaminants and the the risk of snapping off parts of the plants um, you know increases greatly when your butt's in there moving around and so I, I tell people you know pretty much plan on on uh, filling up the tent but not necessarily getting into it physically you know you you may get on your hands and knees to reach something that's going on towards the back um, but but don't be planning from the get-go to be taking your your feet and your body into the tent yeah i think that 99 percent of the time that's pretty much the way to the go and when you're looking at a tent some of them have a d-shaped door on the side some of them fully unwrap you're going to want to take into consideration if you're putting it in a corner which side that third access door is how you might orient the tent so you can access a side panel one of the key weaknesses of a grow tent is its main zipper that has multiple directions of pull and if you have to completely unhook the zipper every single time you open it, it's going to cause advanced wear and tear, no matter the manufacturer, and it will last a little bit less time. However, if you have a D-door, a side panel, something that you can enter a little bit more frequently, um, that will greatly increase the lifespan of your grow tent. Um, and there's ways to repair them, so it's not the end of the world, but that's something to consider as far as the shape. Now, I will say a lot of our customers, if they have an open warehouse, they will get like a 10 by 10 or a 10 by 20. They'll set up an entire grow room inside of it. They will walk inside. And sometimes that's because the lung room around it is maybe a lower temperature or something that they kind of want to get inside and maybe reseal it. But that is a much bigger situation. And you should know exactly what you need at that point. If you're asking what grow tent, 
normally those are going to be the main requirements is consider a size that you can max out space. Otherwise, you're kind of wasting paying for the electricity for having walking area, you know? Yeah, for sure. And gosh, having a, a 10 by 20 would be super boss. You know, most people I know, and probably most people who are listening, they're talking more about working in a four by four or similar, yes. right? Because the, yes. most people come to a tent because they, they want to be able to grow their own cannabis and they live either in an apartment situation or a housing situation where uh, growing outdoors is, is not reasonable, right? So generally people come to a tent because of, uh, you know, uh, area constraints at the beginning, but I certainly know plenty of folks who um, are breeding who decide that, oh, you know, it makes a lot more sense for me to set up, you know, 12 10 by 20 tents and have all of these individual environments um, within my bigger warehouse. But that's that's not as much what we're talking about today. Uh, certainly, there are that's a great application, but we're, we're really talking more about the, the home grower who's just trying to grow their own ganja. Yeah, and a tent makes sense, um, especially because you can build something pretty cheap, but then it takes time, effort, labor, tools. And now construction, not as easily collapsible and movable. So these tents, they have vents. They hang your lights. They work really, really well, and they can be affordable. Um, so I agree. I think that on the minimum side, if we're just looking at like a 3 by 3 versus a 4 by 4 most of the grow lights are going to be pretty easy to purchase and upgrade on kind of a 4 by 4 platform. So if you start with a 4 by 4 and you get a secondary tent, um, it'll always work. And like you said, if you go with a 3 by 3 if you had room for that extra foot around, I mean, it's going to make a significant difference from 9 square feet to 16 is a lot bigger jump than people think of when they say three by three or four by four. Plus a lot of, uh, a lot of the things in the market are designed size wise for the four by four. Yep. And so just be easier to buy your gear. Yes. And always having a little perimeter space in case your ventilation moves the sides of the tent in. Um, sometimes, um, like for instance out here, it's fairly dry. I'll use a passive air intake. And so when I'm exhausting air, um, it tends to pull the tents just a little bit. And if you're in a three by three, it's going to then shrink your space. And if you uh, out here in the winter, it can create condensation and all sorts of things. So having a four by four kind of at minimum, I really like if we can get to that size. It seems like it makes everything a little bit more um, scalable and a little bit more usable. So. You know, historically, everybody was growing in plastic pots because that's what we had. Uh, but over the last several years, we've got really nice fabric pots out on the market. And I've personally, while I don't have one in my 4x4 yet, I have fallen in love with the, uh, the 4x4 uh, uh, fabric raised beds. Uh, my, when, I, when I next upgrade my tent, that's where I'm going because I love the idea of the, the roots being able to interact with each other so that the plants don't feel like it's as much of a, you know, a monoculture that they get to talk to each other. Right. Um, but you know, uh, the containers that we use are, are really, um, uh, should be customized for our growing environment. So, you know, each have their advantages. What you have done more tests in tents, um, than I, than anybody I know. So I'm assuming that you have gone through plastic versus po fabric pots versus the um, the raised beds. How do you compare and contrast them? Another really good question. And all of these methods will work. None of them are the right way to do it. It's all what's right for you and your situation. And like you hit on, there's going to be pros and cons for every single one of these that you do. Um, a lot of people jumped on the fabric pot bandwagon and um, without doing 
investigation on what the differences might be. So they'd carry their same watering practices from plastic to fabric, and they would maybe unfairly judge the fabric um, based on old habits. And so I think that as long as you have a idea of your watering habits and what, what the pros and cons are, um, you can fairly choose. So obviously with the plastic, it's not going to breathe the same as fabric. And that means that it's going to hold water a little bit longer. And a lot of times if you're trying to sex seedlings and you're forcing them in smaller containers because you're in limited space until they've identified their, their, um, their sex, a lot of times you want the plants to hold on to a little bit of water at that point. And if it dries out too quickly, it may lead to more labor on your part. And if you've got a busy life, it may lead to a decline in health in the garden. So in that case, plastic's reusable, it holds more water, and they, they are nice. The main argument is that plastic will swirl the roots, where the fabric, when it breathes on the edge, it will root prune. And there's a hybrid option now that um, Grassroots Fabric Pots offers, we sell, and we're slowly working our way down all the way to one gallon. Um, but it is a fabric pot that's foldable, which is great for shipping cost and environmental cost, so to speak. Um, it, it also is reusable, but it's lined about 75 to 80% with plastic, but the bottom inches remain open to root prune. So the roots are guided from the side where they hit the plastic down to the bottom, and instead of circling, they, they air prune when they get to the, the part that breathes down low. And this prevents the kind of root rot at the bottom, and so a lot of the big plastic containers will have large air holes at the bottom to allow the pots to breathe, but that will, that will let your soil fall out, and then it gets all over the place, where in the fabric container that doesn't happen. So pros and cons, um, main consideration with like a living soil grow, whether you're doing plastic, whether you're doing fabric is going to be the size. And one of the things I've found most of our customer base who is looking to grow in a regenerative organic style and look for, um, the processes that mimic nature and they're, they're into that, right? Um, typically what we're going to do is look for a bigger container size because that's more mimicking nature that's going to allow the biology to keep up with the nutrient cycling. It's going to allow commingling of roots. But more importantly for me, it's going to allow me to go snowboard. It's going to allow me to go spend time with my family. And that means that I'm not potentially stressed out about the garden back at home not being tended to properly. And one thing I know about gardening is it's about discipline and routine. And if we can set that cycle up to be uh, hedged on our side a little bit so it's a little bit more uh, simple – I think that we're going to experience a year-round production that is very quality, and that is going to be the first step in preventing pests. Because we're consistent, we should not see a decline in health. So I like a larger container. I personally like the fabric that is lined with the plastic, but indoors, the way I'd make the determining factor is if you live in a very humid environment, straight fabric's the way to go. Here in Colorado, it's really dry, so I like the plastic-lined fabric. Um, and then either way, you just have to adapt your watering practices to make sure you're not over or under watering because of the slight differences between the, the methods. Using that large container, it's a lot like uh, you know people preferring larger aquariums too. With a lot with a lot more water in the aquarium, the water can buffer any mistakes that you make, and it doesn't affect the fish as much. Similarly, with with our plants, the more soil we have, it, everything gets buffered a little bit more, and they can share resources and water, and and, and it makes uh, your your mistakes are are, are 
softened a little bit more. One thing I often hear from patients that I work with is that they've got this hesitation to go with one big container in the tent because they want to keep that um, option to be able to take the plants out of the tent and go into the light of day or into another room or put, you know, so that they can work on them. Whatever, whatever their concern is, they, they much rather go with uh, one container per plant just in case they need to pull them out. And, and I often suggest, you know, if, if that's going to help you while you are learning how to grow, you know, that's not the worst thing in the world, but, but it's really much better for the plant if you let them co-mingle like that. How do you help people weigh that out? You know, that's a good consideration. I almost forgot what it's like to have that thought. And that's part of why it's helpful to have these questions. But I can remember um, when I was considering going to a larger bed, I was very much paralyzed by the thought that I might not, I, I can't see that back right corner. I can't clear them out and bring that one up front to investigate because that's where the spider mites were. That's where the problem started, where I couldn't get to. But what I learned over a long period of time developing confidence was that a larger bed, um, it it stopped the number one effect, which is the over and under watering. And once you got into a cycle, it prevented more disease, more pest problems, and it actually improved the quality so that I never ever needed to move that plant and rotate it or move it. Um, and so now I don't even consider it. In fact, just as much as my farm, I never am going to go pull a, pull um, any of the vegetables out of the farm, bring them into the kitchen, investigate them, and go put them back. <laughs> and so I think if we just kind of eliminate that as we're more farming than we are. Um, trying to grow like hydroponically. And as long as they know that that's acceptable and people are successful doing that, I think that they'll be okay with it. Um, with that being said, I have a lot of people that like to have lots of different flavors in a constant perpetual grow and are a little less comfortable using a large container or they just don't have the ability to carry that much upstairs and into an apartment, whatever the limitation might be. And I think that you can be just as successful the main caveat here is that if we can limit the plant size to be equal or smaller than the volume of soil, we will be much more geared towards success because we will not push the limitations of the nutrient cycling in the container. So if you have a five gallon plant, you might want to flip to flower when it's just past clone size and then you'll be okay. You're going to have to still be a little more cautious on over and under watering and tend to it a little more often. You probably can't leave for a full weekend during peak stretch. But on a larger container, the only caveat is that this works phenomenally well so long as we don't overdo it. So as long as you're not over amending and over watering, the large container is by far the best way to go because um, you can always add more later. You can always water more the next day. The only challenge is if you really, really overdo it on a large container. And so it's because of that that I don't discourage people using smaller containers to ramp up their learning curve. And a 15 gallon to a 30 gallon is an incredible size container so long as the plant is flipped into flower early enough. And then from those experiences, I think they're gonna be a really natural um, next step to dump that same soil they've already used into their now larger container and, and really get the whole process going. Because then you get worms and you get this whole ecosystem that can kind of thrive even between cycles. And um, I just get great results in the larger containers. Absolutely, absolutely. So there's one more group of people that I want to make sure that we address because um, I think that this is a lot of folks and I have been this person and that if you are a grower who's going to be using a tent and you might have to move it, 
Um, if you are renting and uh, you'd prefer your landlord wasn't aware of it, if you um, have a house and your you know your parents might be coming to visit, uh, if you are concerned about a, an insurance adjuster who might come by at some point during the cycle, you know we all have these these issues that come up where your grow space may not be totally your own, and you might need to like you know uh, move your plants. And I think that's something that that people should let themselves off the hook for. If you know certainly if you have got a secure place to grow, going into a bigger pot is always better. But you know if you're renting, sometimes you have to you know let other people in and if you need to have the ability to oh i'm having somebody come over in two days and you need to be able to take your plants and stash them at a neighbor's place for you know 48 hours or 36 hours um, don't hold that against yourself to have individual containers for your plants we can all this is a scale you know and we're all trying to do the best we can and if you have to keep your individual pots just so you can have a grow you're still way ahead of the curve by having individual pots Yep, and you can totally do it. Like a 15-gallon, it sounds small to me now, but I remember when that was just excessive, really large, a lot of soil, but now I think that's so small. But a 15-gallon can be on top of a tray, and if you have to leave for maybe a day longer than normal, you can maybe bottom water. There's some tricks that you can kind of use. Um, so no matter what, you'll be successful. It's only being aware of the limitations, and I got to tell you, telling your buddy to come over or someone in your household and having a water can set next to the tent and tell them to put that precise amount of water on the four plants or whatever is still way easier than telling them to pH this and add this many milliliters and make sure they don't overdo it, right? So yeah. no matter what you do, there, there's going to be a, a solution for you. Um, it's just being aware of it. So. The last thing I want to hit in this section, and I'm, and I'm assuming that you're going to be in the same category, I really recommend everybody to get a, a, a floor liner or a tray for the bottom. You know, when I first started out, I'm like, oh, this is a place that I'm going to save some money. You know, the bottom of my tent is is uh, is silver, and I and I think it might be waterproof, but I'm gonna I'm just gonna go for it. And golly, that was a mistake because um, you know the the pots give off water and debris and and just random stuff. And um, it also can create an opportunity for condensation between the bottom of the pots and the floor. And so then when you remove the tent, you end up, you've got, oh my God, I've had this water spot on my floor of my apartment or house now for, uh, you know, four months. And, um, you know, I would not recommend trays being a place that people try to save money. Go ahead and make sure you get something with a lip that you can put under the pots between the pots and the bottom of the tent. And you'll be really glad you did. Yep. It makes a lot of sense. You know, our biological soils, they'll eat away those plastic liners that come in the tents that are like to be the, the insert that has a lip that is foldable and you put in the bottom of the tent over the poles that's mainly to keep any moisture off of the metal and that what's gonna rust it and that would leak into the floor. So it's like a secondary prevention. We're on a concrete floor here and my tent was old, so I put the 100 gallon container I have right on that, but it's, it's a horrible idea. Um, if you care about your tent and like you said, the home, it's a lot better idea to try and put something, a tray, a flood tray, anything like that below it. And then the trick is, if you ever have an issue where there was some buildup in your soil or you overwatered, you can just take a shop vac and vacuum it out and it's no problem whatsoever and everything stays clean. 
Yeah, right on. So let's move on to soil. And, you know, like I said in the uh, intro to this show, there is no way that we are going to cover all of soil science and chemistry in one part of a show. And really, all we're trying to do is give folks who are who have come to the show because they're new some ability to get started because they're going to know a lot more at the end of their first cycle than they do now. But for folks who have been growing a long time and they know that you can just like lose hours and hours and hours researching soil, we're just going to try to encapsulate it um, based on, you know, general best practices. So, so let's, let's wade into this. So, um, you know, we are, you and I are both uh, living soil guys and we want to make sure that uh, we have a, a, a thriving microbiome in the container um, so that the area around the plant roots, the rhizosphere is providing all of the microbes needed to the plant so that that exchange between the microbes and the plant can happen in a healthy way. Um, that said, um, there's lots of ways to create that environment. Now, Jeremy, I know that um, you know through running the shop, you spend a lot of time with new folks trying to get them over the hump or over the rabbit hole of soil. What do you find is like the basic best practices to get folks, get folks going so that they can um, get into their first grow and not spend six months learning about soil science before they get to turn their lights on? Oh man, that's a good question because you don't really have to understand it all the way down to its um, nuances to be able to operate successfully. And I think that listeners will be happy to know that we've had successful grows in every variety of soil that um, the soil tests themselves basically on paper said would not work. And so these plants do have a lot of forgiveness. And in an effort of really getting better each year, you can really go down the rabbit hole of soil science, soil testing, and balancing cations, and you can definitely improve disease resistance, quality, and yield. However, that doesn't need to be all considered on your first grow because if this is done right with the basic formula, you can have success and it will be significantly better than what you can find locally, and it's still gonna be great medicine. And so the old rule of thumb that we'd used from the forums was to um, try and find a local compost source that was quality if we could. And that seems to be kind of the challenging part. A lot of times you can reach around, um, reach out and find what people around the area are, are saying is the best and word of mouth, uh, message boards, Craigslist, things like that. And uh, from there, we would make a known kind of potting soil recipe. And the main reason is that growing indoors is, is very different than considering your regional soil and trying to amend that. And in these containers, we kind of have proven formulas where there's a certain amount of aeration, a certain amount of the bulk medium like coconut core or peat moss, something to be the, the fluff that holds all of this together. And then another portion is the compost. And so the recipe we first started with was a three-part recipe, one part compost, one part pumice or perlite or rice holes, anything that would add that drainage factor and um, one part of, of compost. So we used peat moss, and we still do, and that's mainly because you can add calcium to it to, to really get that balance. Um, but the shorthand is that if you mix peat moss or cocoa core with a good compost and a drainage component, one third each, you should have a great beginnings of a living soil. And one of the things that we noticed in the living soil community was that like in hydroponic, you could say, what's your pH? What's your water? And you could have the same conversation coast to coast. 
where in organics, it was always a little bit of nuance. And that's where Build as Well has brought in soil testing and um, premium compost that have kind of a known starting point. But if you're going to start in your area, the old school trick, instead of using one third compost, and let's say you have access to a few different composts, I would try each one of them at 10, 20, and 30% of my recipe and see how the plants do. From that point forward, without spending a lot of money and time, you know basically um, which direction to head. Only reason I say that is sometimes a local municipal compost, it just might be too potent at 30%, where the worm castings down the street might be great at 30%. And so that's the nuance for making your own soil. Um, beyond that, build a soil offers premixed soils, and we also are aware of other manufacturers that make good soils we like to recommend, depending on where you live. So one, let's let's address this idea of no-till right here, because for years and years and years, after every run, we got rid of all of our soil. And, um, you know, while that was fine for the times, I would say that two things that we've learned um, encourage us to keep the soil from one run to another. Number one, uh, redoing your soil after every run can and can be expensive, especially if we're trying to do this on a you know a reasonable budget. And then number two, when you're starting with brand new soil, the amount of time it takes for the fungal networks to grow and the microbe numbers to increase in number is about the si same lifetime of a plant. And so your soil is really just getting to be its best at right about the time of harvest. And so... Um, uh, I really like to just leave that soil, um, you know, in the container, top dress it to refresh some of the nutrients, and then just plant my new clone just to the side of uh, where the root ball already is from the prior plant. Uh, that way you save some money and your second plant, you're planting into a, a pot that is already fungal rich. What are your thoughts? Oh man, that's perfect. And it's all almost conditioned to be um, balanced towards that type of plant as well. And so the limiting factor, like you said, is now we're erring on the, on the, on the side of monocropping the same type of plant over and over again. And one thing we know from farming is you probably got to like rotate crops, right? And so one of the things we do to overcome that is by making sure that there's good biology there and using best practices, but because we're bringing it indoors and because we're harvesting and taking from the soil, all you have to do is remember to top dress and add some basic organic amendments back. And as long as you're slowly feeding that system, it'll, it'll constantly feed back to the plant and you'll have a lot of success. Now, in a regenerative agriculture setting, to build soil without soil testing that is going to be productive, we know that you can um, basically use cover cropping and animal husbandry. And that would literally make soil out of nothing, attract worms and predators and birds and everything you can think of. We can't quite do that indoors, but one of the things we can do to improve a soil that may not be adequately balanced um, is to grow a little bit of cover crop. And you can, this can get out of hand, but if you do it short and then just kind of work it in with your hands, pretending like you're a migratory animal or stomping it down or chopping it up, work it into the top layer, not really tilling, but just adding to that mulch layer that will create an ecosystem. That ecosystem, if you put a few worms in there, will now constantly break that mulch layer down for you, allowing you to keep your soil again and again. And whenever you top dress, that's basically feeding the worms that'll make this into uh, an active fertilizer for you. And in doing so, it, it usually keeps it relatively balanced. And we've learned a few things like calcium, 
needs to be considered. It's very important for disease resistance and, and, and plant health. But as long as you know a couple basics, a top dress is almost all you need once you have this little ecosystem working and it just gets better and better with time. Where one of the things I've observed is if things are too potent and we never grow a cover crop or we never have the worms, it can kind of start to skew one direction. And so it may not be immediately advantageous or it may not appear immediately advantageous to add some worms or to go through the cover cropping process, but when they're used properly, they can keep this ever cycling without getting out of balance. And I think it's really valuable. Before we leave soil, let's talk a little bit about nutrition. Again, this is another topic that some people dedicate their whole lives to figuring out what the best nutrition is. But um, when you're starting out, you really can do a lot uh, with just a little bit. And what I tell the patients that I help them get their growth set up is that if, if they take a good quality soil like you have described on the, on the one-third, one-third, one-third system, and that if you amend it with worm castings and you water with compost tea, that you will not fail based on nutrition. There may be things that you can do better as you uh, get more experienced, but, but, um, but good worm castings and compost tea will give you enough to, to give yourself some good medicine. Um, what are your thoughts on, on what is kind of your entry-level nutrition solution um, as you continue to get more experience? Perfect. This is a really good question. So you hit the nail on the head. There's a wide enough margin of error where if you're using good inputs, you're going to have good results. Now from there, I will say the number one limiting factors that we've seen, and they may not be immediately transparent, but you'll notice disease resistance and everything is better. And that is considering what a lot of people call like a high bricks methodology. And that is typically when we look at what creates that nutrient dense, um, really sugar creating plant is uh, calcium, phosphorus, and balance between the other cations and anions. So when you have this balance, the plant's biology and the plant's resources, they're never robbing Peter to pay Paul. Nature has the ability to get the job done more ways than we can imagine. But its path of least resistance is how nature's gonna work. And if something's missing, it's just gonna move on and use something else to do its job. Our goal is to keep the ink cartridge in our printer, so to speak, full. That way we're never using the wrong color or anything. And that's kind of what you're gonna see where if you can focus on the number one limiting factor, I think, in a compost is that it's gonna be low on calcium and second to that, usually it's going to be imbalanced in the phosphorus to potassium. And so right away, without knowing much, if we just know we're using a lot of compost, I know that usually calcium and phosphorus are low and potassium's high. And it'll work great. But if we were to add some calcium and some phosphorus, either calphose is a great product or gypsum and fishbone meal, there's a number of ways to do it depending on your resources. You typically are going to gear yourself for uh, up for a healthier plant that's able to build its cell walls faster have a larger yield, and the phosphorus is gonna be the main energy source there. Um, that being said, we were successful for a long time using you know, all of the compost and, and not really uh, considering those, those advanced topics. So. so I've got a personal question of myself. You know, um, in, in adding calcium, I, one of the challenges is always having these inputs be available to the plant because they need to be broken down by the biology a certain amount. And I noticed that 
<clears throat> many uh, many uh, organic sh- uh, shops, including your own, carry the the crab meal. And so I thought, oh, all right. Well, I live on an island, and and we get crab all the time. And so um, I just get the Dungeness crabs that we eat, and I put them in a bag, and I hit them a bunch with a hammer to make my own dust. And I kind of scratch it into my top, and so that I I water through them. Am I kidding myself that that calcium is bioavailable to the plant? No, that's perfect. Um, not only that, you're getting a lot of chitin. And I will say that one of the things you'll notice when you start, say, making a worm bin, uh, one of the first things you learn is that the worms don't eat anything. They exude enzymes that are particular to the compound they're breaking down. Um, the first is cellulose. Second is chitin. Those are the two most abundant there are. And so you're going to have a lot of enzymes geared towards breaking those down. Um, but there are ones specific to phosphorus, calcium, all sorts of things. And when you add that material, you're steering the biology to be creating materials that will break that compound down. And so in a worm bin, as long as you don't introduce a brand new material all the time, it's normally microbially geared towards breaking that down. Um, the only difference in the, in the product that we sell is that it's been uh, ground down to probably slightly finer. And I will say that the way you're doing it, there's going to be some short-term and some long-term, but in a, in a highly biologically active soil, especially one with worms, Um, you're not going to have any problem making that calcium available. I think it's a great way to go. You can add eggshells, all sorts of things. Essentially what we're looking at is calcium carbonate. Um, and there's many ways to get that, but there's also many forms of calcium. And so as you start doing soil testing, you'll find there's calcium silicate, there's calcium carbonate, there's uh, calcium sulfate. And so there's reasons to choose one or the other, but when you have a local resource and you can use it like that, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan anytime that we can do wild crafting too, right? I mean, uh, we want it's we want to make sure that we are kind to the environment and we don't we don't want to take so much that we cause environmental degradation. But gosh, there are so many things all around us that the earth gives us that sometimes either just raw as is or with a little bit of effort, we can replace some of the costs of our grow simply by taking a, a nice walk outside high, finding the particular, you know, plant or whatever and then bringing it back and chopping it up. You know, of course, this is this is how people get addicted and find their way to Korean natural farming techniques, right? Yep, yep. But but the idea of going out and interacting with nature and having to learn these plants and bringing them back, I think there's a lot of value in that for folks. Oh God, there really is. And one of the ways I would recommend to do that is to look around your local area. For instance, here in Colorado, I can purchase a book um, that's Edible Plants of the Rockies. And there's several other ones. So in your region, find a book that highlights the edible and medicinal plants in your area. And you'll you'll be un, you'll be blown away at how many there are around you, right on your property, in the park nearby that you can go and and leverage and use. And so for instance, in right down the street from me, there's a whole bunch of uh, puzzle grass they call it. And it's high in silica and it's basically horsetail. And I'll go harvest that and top dress it. And one of the things you get when you wildcraft, especially in KNF you learn this, that if you get the fast growing tips of a healthy wild plant, it's going to be coated in the natural biology. It's going to have all the growth hormones that the tip of the plant and shoots have. And because it's the healthy plant and it's the tip of the plant, you're not going to have any of the disease or pest problems. So when you bring that home and you incorporate it in your system, I believe that's when you're really building the ecosystem um, because you're actually bringing in biology and all the things that are proven to be in a healthy uh, phylosphere or a healthy root system. Um, The one caveat, like you mentioned, is 
we don't like educating people to go wild harvest and find out that they are maybe abusing it a little bit. So just be mindful and pull from multiple locations and um, be considerate. And I think you'll be really happy. And you know, a lot of people live in places where maybe they don't have easy access to nature. And people would be astonished how many of the plants that your neighbors consider invasives are actually really good for you. You know, now granted, we, you don't want to go and harvest from a yard that they're using pesticides in, right? So you want to, you want to avoid that. But where I live, um, people consider nettles uh, an invasive as well as the horsetail. And, and people are like, come get all this stuff. Well, it's like, I'm happy to come and get that stuff because um, I can throw it in a, uh, in a bucket of um, clean water and, with a bubbler and bubble it for 24 hours and water with that. And my plants are totally stoked about it. And, and my neighbors consider it a, a good thing that I'm doing this to help them. Yep. No, it's true. I'll grab bags of leaves, especially if I know a property that doesn't spray. And you can take the leaves and chop them up with grass and almost make an instant compost. It breaks down so quickly. Um, there's tricks that you can use all the time that are regional, local based, depending on your resources. And I think that those are some of the parts where we really get to connect on a spiritual level to the garden. And a lot of our customers agree that there's more to it than just um, a part A and a part B and an end result. There's a enjoyment of the process and a realization that this is a lifetime and that there's lots of lesson to, lessons to be learned from it. And embracing that creates a really rewarding garden system, I think. Fantastic. So when we come back from break, we're going to start off with the monster topic of lights. Uh, but for right now, let's go ahead and take that first short break. You're listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is Jeremy Silva, founder of Build-A-Soil. This message is for folks who grow cannabis. I'm talking to home growers, patients, and commercial growers too. I'm probably talking to you. When you plan out your next growing cycle, be sure to check out Humboldt CSI Seeds at HumboldtCSI.com. Caleb Inspecta and his family have lived in Humboldt County for over 100 years. For the last 40 years, three generations of his family have cultivated extraordinary Sensamia cannabis in Humboldt, Mendocino, and Trinity Counties. Because of his lineage and the hard-earned experience that comes from growing up smoking and sifting large populations of cannabis plants in Northern California, the seeds you'll cop from CSI will be winning genetics based on longtime heavy hitters and updated and resifted to bring out new and exotic traits and better yields. Go ahead and ask around. Caleb, also known as Inspecta and Pirates of the Emerald Triangle, is a breeder's breeder. He reaches way back and works with significant strains, recreating them in new and interesting ways that you'll love as a toker and a grower, as well as offering you some surprises that will delight serious seed traders and cultivators. Humboldt CSI goes a further step and selfs all these chemovars so you know all the seeds will be female. These are not experimental feminized seeds. Humboldt CSI releases some of the best female seeds available anywhere, and it will show in your garden. Folks grew quite a bit of CSI Humboldt Genex last year here on Vashon Island, and everyone was pleased. The patients had beautiful female plants and didn't have to cull half of their garden as males. The folks growing for the fun of getting high grew colorful flowers with exceptional bag appeal and great highs. And breeders had seven out of seven females in a pack, which gave them a lot of phenotypic choices. Take a moment right now and visit HumboldtCSI.com. You'll find an up-to-date menu of both feminized and regular lines along with photos and descriptions. That's HumboldtCSI.com. 
Living soil and regenerative cannabis agriculture are surging in popularity, and to implement these biological solutions, real science education is vital. If you are interested in all things probiotic growing, you will probably want to attend this year's Science of Organic Regenerative Cannabis Cultivation Conference. For the third year in a row, co-founders Joshua Rutherford of Dutch Blooms and Leighton Morrison of Kingdom Aquaponics have lined up an incredible array of educators with all new content for the traveling event. They're calling it version 2.0, going deeper down the rabbit hole. This year's teaching staff includes Elaine Ingham on soil biology, Chris Trump and Wendy Kornberg talking Korean natural farming, Kevin Jodry on cannabis genetics, Kelly and Josh from Dragonfly Earth Medicine, Suzanne Wainwright, the bug lady, Chip Osborne on soil chemistry, and many other thought leaders rotating in and out for different cities. So consult the website to know who specifically is coming for each location. There will be a breeding panel, a Q&A panel with the entire teaching staff, and on Saturday night, there will be a bubble hash discussion as well. Joshua has built in significant informal time for you with the teachers. The teaching staff is just as excited to work with you as you are about attending. There is also no advertising during the event. The only vendor booths are for cannabis seed breeders. Your tuition is what's paying the staff, so they'll all be present and attentive to you, not a corporate sponsor. Even better, the conference is not just for folks on the West Coast. Humboldt, California is hosting one event for sure, but the show is going on the road to Vancouver, British Columbia, Portland, Maine, and Whitmore Lake, Michigan. Get out your pen now because I'm about to give you the website. This is a fabulous opportunity for you to hear from an array of nationally recognized top shelf soil educators all in one place. Not only that, this isn't just beginner stuff like you get at most conventions. This is an intensive for people like us who totally nerd out on the rhizosphere and growing in living soil. And if you attended last year, be assured that this year is not simply a repeat of last year. Every speaker will present different material than they did last year. The website is regenerativeorganiccannabis.com. That's regenerativeorganiccannabis.com. This year, tickets will be limited in number to preserve the intimate experience and will only be sold in advance online. There will be no ticket sales at the door. So don't wait and miss out on your chance to attend this important gathering of the regenerative cannabis community. Cut through all the misinformation out there and don't miss this opportunity to learn real soil science. Regenerativeorganiccannabis.com. One of the reasons why no-till cannabis growing is so valued by farmers is because the mycelium networks in the soil remain established from year to year. And we know these fungal networks are essential because they are the nutrient superhighways that extend far and wide in the substrate to feed your plants. The trouble with growing in new soils or blended cocoa substrates is that it takes most of the plant's life just to create these mycelium highways. Dynamico endomycorrhizal fungi inoculant reduces that time and gets your plant eating a wider array of nutrients faster. And it's three times the concentration of the current leading brand in the U.S. at 900 propagules per gram of two fungal species selected specifically for cannabis cultivation. This new product called Dynamico is the result of 30 years of research and trials at the Volcani Agriculture Research Institute in Israel. It has also been vigorously trialed by cannabis and food growers across the U.S. since the product first arrived here last year. You may have already even heard about Dynamico by its original name, Dynamike. Now, Dynamico is available at grow shops and online in the United States for the first time. 
I love using Dynomyco to both speed up the growth of mycelium networks in the soil, but also as a biostimulant to make clone cuttings more virile. You can see side-by-sides showing the comparative growth on their Instagram at Dynomyco. If you demand reliable growing results and appreciate the importance of an active root zone in creating a thriving plant, I encourage you to check out Dynomyco at dynomyco.com and find out where you can get yours. That's D-Y-N-O-M-Y-C-O.com. Whether you are starting with new beds or pots, or if you want to add some zing to tired soil, choose Dynomyco to maximize your plant's potential. Dynamico Endomycorrhizal Inoculant. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is Jeremy Silva, founder of Build a Soil. So here we are in the second set, and we are going to start off with the monster in the room, which is lights. And I'm not going to front. Lights is actually the part of the growing process that I am the weakest because um, I have got a four by four indoors that I use to dabble with and to learn how to scrog and things. But really, I, I'm all about the outdoor. I grow every summer and I prepare all winter for that summer grow. And because of that, uh, I don't really have the same kind of depth in lights as a lot of folks do. Um, When I did go and get my lights, um, I essentially just asked my buddy who was really into LED which one I should buy for the money I have. And boom, I went and I bought it and that was that. Um, However, you know, we really want to get people prepared to either, you know, get a a, get a cast off light from a friend or potentially, um, you know, get a get a light at a second hand at a reasonable price. Or if you've got the budget, maybe get one of these sexy new LEDs. So so w- with that, Jeremy, I'm just going to like, you know, hand you the mic and say, walk us through the considerations for lights that you see most common with the customers who come in. All right. This is great. And there's a lot of things that I learned the hard way. Um, I hung a light that was too powerful for my grow space thinking, oh, I'll buy a really nice grow light. This will be perfect. And I wasn't ready on the ventilation side and my plants didn't grow. (laughs) It was a pretty bad experience. And through that lesson, I learned a lot. And it's more about getting the right light for your situation or leveraging the light you have to work in your situation than it is about getting any specific brand or specific product. Of course, there's lights that are better than others. But uh, as far as getting a grow light is concerned, you're going to get an end result that's based on most directly the wattage. And then secondarily to that, how you're going to manage the heat that it puts off. And that is directly related to the height. So if you have a very low grow tent or ceiling, you're going to be forced to look at newer technologies that don't push so much heat straight down, or you're going to look at lower energy technologies like CFL, T5, things that are more challenging and less rewarding from yield, but can still be done at a very quality level. So let's say you get a used light, and let's say it's an HID. That's a high-intensity discharge. Most of the lights we read about and used for decades were either a metal halide, the bluer large bulb, or a high-pressure sodium, the more red-orange-looking light that was for flower. The blue was for veg. You can still get those really cost-effective, and I will give you a couple things to consider. Number one is... You're going to have to replace the the bulbs, and that's a little bit of a cost. Initially, it may not matter. There's a safety factor. If you've got a family, if you're worried about fires, if you've got some potential there where maybe it's it's dirty or something, at least consider that so you clean it, you're aware of the limitations, um, and and that that is thought of because the new technology, albeit expensive, is very safe. And then after that, 
um, you can consider the PAR. And a way to do that, PAR is photosynthetically active radiation, but basically it's the output of the light. They're gonna advertise on the old lights lumens. That's what the humans see. PAR is more what the spectrum the plants see. And when you look for a light, all we're trying to do is gauge the distance. So if you've got a six foot tall grow tent, you look up the light that you got from a buddy or on Craigslist or what you have access to purchase, and it says at two feet, the PAR is X, or at one foot, the PAR is X. Consider that and follow those manufacturer recommendations. If you can get that information normally in veg, you're safe anywhere from 100 to 500 PAR, and in flower, the range is 500 to 1,000. As you get closer to 1,000, it's a little bit intense. It might be a little bit bright on the top buds, and if you've got an old light that's putting a lot of heat out, you might have to have it further in your grow tent up, and that might limit the height of the plant. So any light will work. You just have to start to be aware of those limiting factors. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, it does, because <clears throat> really we, we all grow weed with all these different lights. And so you, if it, you just have to be prepared. Like, okay, if you're going to uh, choose a solution that fits your budget but produces a lot of heat, well, then you're going to have to make up for the heat. If you've got more money but you don't want to have as much heat, well, okay, well, well then you're going to react to that. I, I like the, your general thought, though, to <clears throat> get started with whatever you can and don't put off the growing just because um, you don't have the sexy new light budget. Yeah, and especially if you're like me and you were buying cannabis beforehand, um, it's going to save room in your budget so quickly once you get started. You'll, you'll change from being just a consumer to being a producer, and that'll give you options. Even if you never make money from your grow and you never sell a vegetable, never trade cannabis, just having offset your own personal budget and being efficient enough to not overpay in electricity versus your production, you'll be doing great. Now, the new spectrums, the new technology, they definitely produce better quality. So if you're in a, in a, in a situation where you can just go buy a grow light, I would definitely recommend looking at LED, ceramic metal halide, um, because those two technologies are pretty proven and there's a lot of manufacturers that make them. And there's a lot of um, basic information about like how far to put them, all that stuff. So let's hit on. Can we, will you say a couple words about uh, the age of bulbs? Because you know there are a lot of people who get lights from their friends, and you know bulbs have only got a certain amount of life in them before they start to shift spectrum. But because I've never owned these, I've never had that experience myself. Yeah, and you'll notice. Um, so there's a couple things. It used to be that we all use glass glass hoods. And you'll find that if you're in the used market, you'll find a, an air-cooled glass encased hood where the bulb is up in, in this big hood and below it is this glass panel that closes. And then you can put vents on both sides and move the air quickly through there. The idea is that now you can use a very powerful grow light, getting the actual par level that we want on the surface of the plant without getting the heat directly on the plant. You'll suck it out of there with a vent. The challenge is, is that blocks the light, it gets dirty inside of there, it lowers the actual light value if you're not considering cleaning it. And then from there, the lamp inside there um, can get dirty. And then beyond that, if you're not cleaning that lamp between cycles, it also decays. And when it starts to decay, the ballast that is sending the power continues to feed 100% of the power to a bulb that can no longer receive it. So once it gets out of whack, it starts to decline faster and faster because it can no longer handle the excessive power that's receiving based on its decay. And I think that it's not just a dimmer 
it's not just dimmer. And so if you were to read the par, it may not be a huge difference, but it starts to slide in spectrum. Um, so if you're trying to use that ink analogy, if you've got a, a light that is able to produce a certain picture of color, as it decays, it's not able to fulfill that color and it starts to change. And so you'll notice, um, depending on the manufacturer, after a couple of cycles, you start to either lose a quality or a yield. And so um, some growers either get a cheap bulb and change it every single time. Some alternative growers will say, hey, I'd rather get the best quality lamp and I'll replace it according to their directions, which is usually on a certain number of hours. And if it's only in your flower room, that's 12 hours a day. You can calculate that number of hours and it's kind of like a water filter. Sure, you can push it longer, but are you still receiving all of the benefit? So this conversation moves smoothly into the discussion of ventilation. There is an entire range of ventilation woes from the worst where you've got a really hot light that if you don't ventilate coming out of your tent, it'll just cook your plants all the way to, you know, very modern LED, which are pretty much cool. They might, they might get off, give off some heat, but nothing that's going to threaten your plants and, and may actually help your tent stay at a pleasant temperature just because that, that, um, that heat it's giving off is actually going to be an advantage. So, uh, I, I think a lot of people miss the idea that it's not just simply, uh, you know, taking an exhaust tube and putting it from the inside of the tent to the outside of the tent, the, uh, the amount of energy that goes into your, your fan is something that really should be considered. Yes. And I think that the home grower would be, um, they could benefit from two tools here. Obviously you need a, an exhaust fan. You can have an intake fan and a lot of people will match the power of those. Or the next tool that I recommend would be a, <clears throat> a variable speed controller, kind of like a dimmer switch for your fan. Uh, we carry a product that has one built in or you can buy the basic one and, and add it separately. And another thing that you can use is um, a feature where uh, you can either control it on humidity or you can just use a basic timer and turn your fan on and off based on a timer sequence. And the reason why these tools are important is most growers find that when they just hook up a fan, it may not be exactly what they need to keep their environment right. And so there's a couple options, a couple of um, scenarios I'll, I'll share. If you have a light that's older and puts out more heat, heat is based on the wattage. So if you have a thousand watt light, it's going to put out a very similar amount of heat to a brand new thousand watt LED. The difference is most people LED wise are so much more efficient. They can use half the wattage and produce very similar results. So there's going to be less heat. The other difference is that the newer products like that, they push less heat down and more heat comes off the top, so it's easy to evacuate from the top of the tent by exhausting the air. And as you mentioned, if you need that warmth, here it's cold in Colorado, um, that enables you to either slow the venting down or put it on a timer so that you can keep the heat in the tent. And so the consideration to balance there is one of looking back at the weakest link. The weakest link in a grow room is gonna be um, the extreme. So if temperature is too high, you have to vent. But let's say the temperature's in range. Now the reason to vent is based on CO2 and humidity. So the two things to remember is that plants require CO2 to grow. So if you put them in a sealed room with no fresh air, they will eventually suffocate from burning all the CO2, just like a human would with, with a bag over their head with no oxygen. So in a grow room, we need to ventilate it. Every bit of fresh air you bring in adds fresh CO2. That's why a lot of organic growers won't supplement CO2 because they'd rather just have passive or active airflow, and that's where they get CO2, just like nature. So as long as you have some air moving, you're fine. That doesn't mean it needs to be cycling like crazy. So if it is too cold and it's really low humidity, 
I would actually run my fan maybe every 15 minutes every hour. And that might keep me warm enough and it might keep my humidity up because the plants transpire. It makes a really nice greenhouse effect in there. But here in Colorado, if I just plug my fan in full blast 24 seven, it's going to be less than 10% humidity and it might be too cold. So venting and lighting is based on trying to find the optimal environment. And without knowing your actual numbers, I would say that if you can have in veg 70 degrees, 75, 80 degrees, somewhere in that range, and a high humidity, 50 to 70%, you're gonna have very fast growth. Contrary to that in flower, you probably wanna say in a similar temperature range, and colder at the end is not as bad, but you don't wanna be above 50% humidity for most people. You wanna be in that 40 to 50 range so that you can have good plant health but avoid the mold. If you consider all that and you're able to get the environment right and your vent is on every once in a while, you've made it, you're good to go. I've heard many people try to save money when they're setting up by using an exhaust fan, but skipping the intake fan on the idea that, well, when I'm sucking air out of the tent, there are enough like little spaces between threads and um, areas between zippers where, but where air gets pulled in to uh, just because there's a, a vacuum being created inside the tent. Is that foolhardy? No, that's perfect. Um, you have to be aware of what it does. So here's the thing. That's called passive air intake. When you exhaust, it creates that effect where because air is leaving, air is going to come in somewhere. The challenge is if your tent is very sealed and it's in flower and you don't want any light leaks, it's going to suck the sides of your tent in, dramatically reducing your space. There's two considerations. One is if you have a scrog screen frame or a PVC frame in there that you build to put a screen on, um, that creates a frame that will not allow the tent to suck in anymore. And now the only side effect is a negative pressure, which does keep it fairly clean because now the air is constantly exhausting any contaminants, any molds, but likely not a lot is coming in. Um, alternative to that, you can, on a veg tent, open up. A lot of these tents have a, a Velcro flap that you can roll up, and it will really let the air in so that when you're exhausting, it comes in at a high rate. Um and I think that that's fine because a lot of times you end up replacing these fans. They're constantly burning electricity. And so as long as you can get it to work, I think it's great. However, if you really do want to filter that air that's coming in and put a set speed so that the tent feels like it's not getting sucked in, the added cost of a intake fan and a filter um, will keep clean air so you don't have debris and hair and stuff floating into your tent that will get onto your buds. And if you have a weakened immune system, that extra step might be super important for you. So, you know, all this has been leading up to actually growing the plants and people ask me, you know, like, what should I grow? And what I tell people is grow what you want, right? Like most people are usually getting into this because there's a certain flowers that they particularly like and they want to make sure they have them. Or if this is specifically for their health, they're growing the plants that they need to get the relief they're looking for. Um, I'm not really familiar of any cultivars that should not be grown in tents. I mean, certainly a lot of the the, the thinner, taller growing sativas, you have to <clears throat> definitely be aware of their height um, and you have to manage that, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But um, have you, you know, you do a lot of side-by-side -side testing. Have you come across any cultivars which uh, really are should not be considered for tent? Um, no. Like you said, stretch is the key component and time of flower. So if your electricity is very expensive, it would behoove you to grow something that finishes faster because the juice may not be worth the squeeze. However, if it's very affordable 
and or you're blessed with an unlimited budget, you can look at it as growing whatever you want because um, this is for you. The main difference there would be, hey, if I'm growing a really um, you know, long flowering, narrow leaf plant that's gonna stretch a lot, I would flip it into flower almost immediately from transplant, maybe after a few days of veg, so that I can um, be prepared for any amount of stretch and any duration of time it takes. The only time I see challenges is when people get, um, you know, they grow too big of a plant for their environment. And too big of a plant leads to less airflow and more crowding and more disease and pests and bugs and all the problems. So if you're going to um, do growing for quality, always err on the side of more room, smaller plant. And then as you start to learn your process, you can totally push those boundaries as opposed to overdoing it the first time and not having the bandwidth to handle it. So let's let's talk talk about some of the challenges that we're going to run into. <clears throat> um, uh, during the last set, we're going to talk about some some advanced uh, tent techniques. But really, there's some basic stuff that we can do to make sure that when we when we either will not run into these challenges at all, um, or if we do, we'll be set up for success. And of course, the one at the top of the list is pests, right? Um, everybody's scared to death of it. And, um, and, and when you're indoor, you've got a lot less flexibility than you do outdoor where there's already all of these, uh, natural predators outside. Um, so I would say one thing, and we'll be talking more about, um, companion plants later is to, is to plant pests or, or excuse me, plant plants that um, uh, attract, um, you know, the, the predators, but that really is works best outside because if our, if we're running our tent properly indoors, we're not going to be attracting anything in because it's going to be sealed up and secure. And so we really only have solutions that uh, occur within the tent. So, so what are some uh, basics that we can uh, follow, basic rules that we can follow um, so that we just don't get pests to begin with? Uh, th this is great. So the first thing to consider is healthy seeds because in life, let's say we had the ability to pick our genetics that probably prevent most of our problems, right? At least the ones that are out of our control. So getting good seeds, not a clone from a friend. If you really have to have that clone only, it's just difficult. I mean, I've known people that really trust to know their friend, but until they get involved in growing, may not know their little secrets about what poisons they use or what pests and disease they might have. So if you start from seed, you're, you're sure to be good and if you can get a reputable breeder with really quality seeds it it will dramatically change your first experience if you get the proper genetics it will resist disease and pests and grow healthy and have a good yield almost despite you but with the wrong seeds um, it can make it a lot a lot less rewarding and that may affect your ability to continue this and sustain it versus having to buy what you actually know will produce the value for you so get good seeds and you'll be off to a great start Second to that, just like human nutrition, there's a lot more than just what you eat. You have to have a good environment. And so that means that if you focus on the venting, the light, and you get it in the right temperature and the humidity is good and, and you've put maybe a hygrometer temperature in there and you've checked the highs and lows to make sure you don't have major swings, once you know you're there, most of your problems will go away with good genetics and good environment. So do not discount that. If you have high heat and you have, um, you know, really no humidity or or way high humidity all the time, that's going to be more important than any nutritional aspect we can cover. Now, if those are covered and we're looking at nutrition and everything, we want to make sure that there's um, some basics that we maybe keeping the tent clean, some basics as far as nutrition so they don't run out because where nature likes to bring disease and pests is to clean things up. So if you are having an unhealthy plant, 
or it's out of place because the environment's not right. It's just going to call the signal in to decompose it, have the pests eat it, and that's typically where we get the problems. Alternative to that, like I mentioned, is getting a clone that's already infested. And usually if it's your first time, you just don't know until it's too late. So avoid that, and I think that you're going to avoid 99% of the pitfalls that most growers fall into. All right, totally agreed. And and I think that a lot of people assume that pests are going to be part of their indoor growing experience, and it really doesn't have to. If you are keeping the uh, the tent within expected parameters, and if you don't get cuts from your friends, because uh, you know that's that I would say that is the number one way that pests get introduced is somebody's got this great plant and they give you a cut and uh and it's got something on it and 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 while i'm a big fan of of dipping cuts um if you have to have it i'm a way more of a fan of not taking that cut at all and just yep. finding yourself a quality seed not only that you know clones are not as vigorous as growing from seeds and and nowadays that when we can get feminized seeds um you know, a lot of people would skip seeds because they're like, oh, I don't want to go through the process of sexing and then cutting off of it and all that. And, and believe me, I, I, get, I get that. That can be a hassle, especially if you're a patient with limited resources and time and space. Um, but, but now that we're in the land of, of feminized seeds, if, if you're really just trying to, you know, get something going, one seed equaling one feminized plant really takes out a lot of the, a lot of the reason to go down the clone path to even begin yep. with. Then you can clone your own mm-hmm. and you're good to go. And with feminized seed, you can flower right from seed, have very small plants and a high plant count and get a harvest almost immediately instead of buying auto flowers. However, if plant count is a limiting factor, you can treat them just like a normal plant, clone them, keep them, do everything that you would want. And it's very rewarding to do that. I, I really agree on that. The other thing that you mentioned was maybe some preventative tactics and One of the things I've learned about nature is it abhors a void. It's going to fill it with something. And if we bring in this really rich compost and this beautiful potting soil and this warm, humid environment and this grow light, I don't care how good you are, there will be a time where there's an issue. And to prevent that from ever being a problem, this is like using a probiotic method instead of an antibiotic method. We will. um, Typically, when we start a new grow, we will um, either harvest some plants locally and put them in as top dress to start the process We'll put worms in, but I'll also order usually nematodes, predator mites, and rove beetles, and we will put them in the container. Once I've done that, I want to make sure they stay alive. So I usually put in the cover crop, and the cover crop I never let out compete. I always let it stay low, and I'll smash it down, but the added benefit is it will produce an environment that will house all these predators, and it will feed them pollen, and it'll feed them exudates, and all these things that keep them active. So that if anything ever gets in there, you have a whole entire army ready to destroy it so that you never have an issue. And we have a, um, a two grow tents doing side-by-side in a retail store in a farming environment with every known problem in the epicenter <laughs> of hemp and cannabis. And we've never had an issue, knock on wood, because we immediately put in rove beetles, predator mites. We use good practices. And so now we have kind of a team helping us instead of the bubble boy syndrome where it is so sterile. If one thing gets in there, it's going to be the end. And so I've noticed that um, usually organic growers that preemptively add the worms and the beneficials, um, they just don't have any issues. Now, if you can't afford the beneficials on your first grow, get some good compost. It's normally going to be a byproduct by your second or third cycle. You're going to be like, where did all this life come from? How did it get here? 
I, I, I can't help but laugh thinking about that. I had never really, you know, I, I follow you on Instagram and I follow your side by sides that you pretty much continually do. But it, it's only now occurring to me that you've got growers from all over Colorado walking to, you know, coming into your oh, they come store. In, like, I got rusted mites. What is this bug? And I'm like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> what a, home. man. Like, what? Are you serious? You got to keep say, those bulletproof. Get out of here. Oh man. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah. And you know, um, so many times with new growers, the first thing that they have to deal with is fungus gnats because, uh, you know, I think that we all tend to overwater, um, and the um, the beneficial nematodes that you're talking about, the especially the I think it's pronounced hypoasis um, nematodes that take care of fungus gnats. You know, that's a great place to start. And granted, you know, you know, all three of the categories that you suggested when they work in concert together. Um, but you know, if you've got limited, if you've got limited budget, if you can get rid of those fungus gnats. Um, you can, you can avoid them, uh, eating at your roots and my gosh, just the, the emotional distress of fungus gnats, um, that, you know, that, that can, that can dampen the growing experience itself. Oh God. If your wife is in the other room or some, your roommate or something and is like, where are these gnats coming from? <laughs> you can put a damper on things pretty quick. So, it, and they go, um, they go from the grow room to the kitchen really quickly. Yeah. It's going to be the number one problem. And thankfully it's not a very big deal. And by your second or third cycle, they'll be 100% gone. That's the advantage of not having to start from scratch every single time. But I don't care what we do. If we get a compost involved, there is a chance that their favorite food, um, Nat's favorite food, is going to be that compost. And it's, it's possible there's a larva. It's possible that they're in the house plants already or somehow they get in that soil. And the idea of putting the hypoapsis you meant, they changed their name to, I think, Stradio now. may have changed again. But those are the predator mites. And those will eat the larva, and they're great. The nematodes are a little smaller. So the idea of the three was the smallest it is the nematode. It's microscopic inside the soil. And the next was the predator mite, and that is the next size up. Larger than that is the rove beetle, which is about the size of a grain of rice. And so when you cover all three of those sizes, you fill a, no a lot of nooks and crannies within the ecosystem. And if you get that started right away – even if there is some gnat larva, it's never going to be a problem. You might see a few gnats. It'll never get out of control and eventually goes away. However, um, if, they're, if you wait until you have the problem, it's going to take a month or so, and it's going to take some active participation on not excessive watering and really making sure that you consider all the things to get rid of these gnats. The good news is you can grow an entire cycle and have bad gnats, and the only downside is they may – be a vector landing in your leaf material. And when you go to trim, you might want to be conscious of that and make sure that it doesn't involve itself in your final product. But by the second cycle, they'll be gone. The other consideration here is that even though um, people may have a problem with really young plants eating the roots, if you've got a mulch system in place, they're going to eat the debris there. They're not going to eat the plant roots. And in a healthy living soil, the plant will persist almost despite the gnats no matter what. And um, there's some tricks that we have. You can remove the entire top one or two inches and discard it. That's where most of the larva would be if it gets out of control. And then you could put a barrier in temporarily, a layer of sand, a layer of something that will suffocate them out and kill them. You can remove the layer, put in fresh mulch, start back up again, and normally we'll never have a problem again. So it, it's totally handleable. 
Uh, I'm laughing at myself because I just broke one of my own rules and luckily you corrected it because, you know, as, as a source of information, I have to be really clean about the information that I give people. Right. And, and there I was, uh, suggesting species of beneficial nematodes. And I'm thank you for the correction just because, um, I thought I was repeating what I, I learned over the weekend at the regenerative agricultural conference from Suzanne, the bug lady. Right. But clearly I, I, I remembered it wrong and I had not tried them myself. And, you know, once you try something yourself, then you really have experience with it and you can start sharing with people. But like, oh, there I went. And I just, I, I passed on information incorrectly. And that's like one of my, one of, one of my pet peeves is when anybody does that, right? It's like classic bro science I just did. Yeah. But you did a good job in the sense that your source was a very proven source that's reputable. And although you um, confused a couple of the words, it would have led to the correct info information for anyone that does their part, which is researching whatever they receive as information to process into their garden. So I don't care if I provide the information or someone else does. Do a Google real quick. <laughs> Just make sure that you're doing your part in your garden so you're never a victim of bad information. And I think that you're going to be really happy having your own garden. And it's going to be a gateway. You may end up growing your own food. You may end up sharing this lifestyle with another person. And I tell you what, it may not be your family's favorite thing if you're in a state where um, this is um, you know, not talked about or it's frowned upon. But as they age and have pain and can't sleep, you're going to be the number one resource in your family for providing relief and assistance. And it's only a matter of time till people understand how beneficial these plants really are. Yeah, that's fantastic. And just to be clear, I want to be, it was my error in my notes. I'm sure that whatever came out of uh, Suzanne the Bug Lady's mouth was yeah, accurate. Yeah, she was right. Yeah, it was, it was my notes that were wrong. But, but to your point, um, you know, I love the saying that cannabis is a gateway to horticulture. Right. Because like so many people, once they start playing with the cannabis plant and they and they, you know, they, they've got their first cycle. I'm like, oh, my God, I, I did this thing. I interacted with nature. It's a very short jump to to growing your own vegetables. And I mean, heck, it, we'll talk about this more in a little bit, but it's even fun to grow lettuces and other potential things inside your tent with your plants. Um, once you once you get over the hump that that you can and deserve to interact with nature. You know, all, all the doors fling open. Yep. It's incredible. I mean, you can go down the rabbit hole. It's like your own Lego set with nature. You have these periodic table of elements. And although there's so many of them, all they are is a mixture of energy in about nine different sh rotational shapes. And somehow they create our entire fucking universe. And when you can interact, if you've like, I grew up at a cul-de-sac and you plug me into this system where I'm manifesting my own reality and transmuting a thought of this plant into 3D printed version in front of you. It's like there's a power in that. And all of a sudden you start looking forward to the days after you plant the seeds and you start looking forward to opening the tent door. And um, it really starts to take over your life in ways that you'd never expect. Yep. So let's do one more best practices before we go to our second commercial. And just like pests, mold, um, you know, botrytis and powdery mildew scare the hell out of a lot of people for good reason. But really, if you set yourself up correctly from the beginning, your likelihood of having any issues decreases greatly. So what are those best practices? Oh, this is good. So PM and mold are the two biggest issues. Um, I've been through both of them and they're horrifying. So powdery mildew, if you've never experienced it, it's a white mildewy kind of almost like powdered sugar looking thing on your leaves. 
If it's your first grow, you may even mistake it for a lot of frost and be embarrassed to find out um, that it's powdery mildew. Prevention of this is typically having a very healthy plant in a ecosystem that is conducive. And um, contrary to popular belief, having high humidity will not cause powdery mildew. It usually prevents it. Um, the low humidity, alternatively, um, can create a powdery mildew situation. Research it. Obviously, there's no simple rule with nature. There's hundreds of types of powdery mildew. Typically, that PM is subject to a very narrow range of host plants. So if you find PM in the garden plants out front of your house, it doesn't mean that it's going to be in your garden. But if you have a very unhealthy environment in your garden, it is in the air and it will find its way. And if you're in a heavily garden area like the Pacific Northwest, it's more prevalent in the air. And that means that if you have the wrong environment, it will host itself almost matter of fact, just like making sourdough bread. You leave out the material, it's going to happen. So that being considered or that, that taken into consideration, if you have the right environment, that means you have airflow. The temperatures are proper and the humidity is proper. That's going to lead to a healthy plant that is not underwatered on accident for days at a time. If that is all taken right, then that means that the next step is to consider your environment being flat with a light. It's not a sun going around the plant. And in a tent, as you start to maximize the space, you're going to have to now clean up the lower legs of the plant, remove leaves so that there's more airflow and you don't have a hosting spot for moisture to sit on certain leaves where it can be a vector for disease to grow. And then as you get into flower, the opposite's true. If you have too high of a humidity, that can lead to actual botrytis or this bud rot, they call it, of mold growing in a very dense, wet flower. And this will happen if your exhaust fan kicks off and the heat of the light goes up and the humidity goes up and you're unaware of it. Or it can happen if the humidity of the lung room goes up seasonally. So you may have had your first grow perfect and all of a sudden it's now in a more humid time of year and you didn't change anything. So as a grower, as you start to cycle, you need to be in tune with nature cycles as they affect your house. If you run a swamp cooler where you live, that's a different type of season than when you don't have a swamp cooler running because of the humidity. So consider those things. You'll never have humidity. You'll never have powdery mildew. If you live in the worst area, you might want to add a weekly spray. We use an EM5, Dr. Bronner soap, plain water. I mean, you just want to kind of keep the leaf surface clean of the actual powdery mildew spore or the botrytis spores. And in flower, you don't want to have to spray, so it's better to get the environment right than trying to fight it. Um, and those are pretty much everything I'd say about powdery mildew and mold. Very good. And, you know, I really like the the preventative of a spray myself. Um, I like using either uh, an EM or a compost tea because the idea is there's only room for the opportunistic powdery mildew to live on the leaf if there's not already a heavy-duty microbe colony already living there that would consume the PM when as soon as it lands. So if yep. you're if you're spraying, um, uh, you know something something microbial and healthy. Uh, all through veg on a regular schedule and your leaves are, you know, the tops and bottoms are essentially this like beneficial army of microbes, you know, by, as you roll into flower, your likelihood of having to do anything during flower um, is the best. Cause of course you're going to stop spraying cause you don't want to get your spray in the flowers. But, but really if you are diligent during veg, uh, the likelihood that you will have any problem during flower is you know, astronomically decreased. Yes. And, the only reason I mentioned having everything proper is 
having sprays and having all these things will work very well. But even if you have it all wrong, narrowing your window of opportunity down to just flower, just the last half of flower, that'll eliminate a lot of issues. But if you can make it with the environment is proper no matter what, that'll widen your range. And I'll tell you what those will do for you. When you first start growing and you're up against it and you may not consider these things we discussed today, your plant health will decline and it's almost like, can I make it to finish? <laughs> and then when you start I getting have, good I have at lived it, this hell, yeah. Oh man, it sucks. But when you get past that and you could literally go infinitely, you can let a plant truly ripen to its real potential and still be in peak health and that'll allow you to really enjoy the nuances this plant has to offer and you'll soon find out why What's readily available on the market is not the same as what you can produce yourself based on all those nuances of preference that you're going to learn based on just this growing affinity with your own garden. The worst case scenario is that you're about to flip to bloom and you have these problems pre-existing. You really don't want to go into bloom with the issues. So if you need to put off your flower a little bit until you get this stuff cleared up, you might as well because that might just cost you a week or two instead of wasting all your effort by um, by everything falling apart during bloom. Yes, and just like life, nature in the garden, it's going to be a little bit of a condensed time frame, but it's going to teach you lessons. And if you don't learn it the first time, it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. So as soon as you notice an environmental difference, try and fix it. And as soon as you notice something off, try and be considerate of it. If you wait and put it off till tomorrow or next week, as a grower, that is the first habit you have to get rid of, and it's going to improve every part of your life. Fabulous. So let's go ahead and take that second short break. We'll be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is Jeremy Silva, founder of Build-A-Soil. Did you know that Shaping Fire has a fabulous YouTube channel with content not found on the podcast? When I attend conventions or speak or moderate panels, I always record them and bring the content home for you to watch. The Shango Los YouTube channel has world-class speakers, including Kevin Jodry of Wonderland Nursery, talking about breeding cannabis for the best terpene profile. Nicholas Mahmood on regenerative and polyculture cannabis growing. Dr. Sunil Agarwal on the history of cannabis medicine around the world. Ben Cassidy of True Terpenes on using terpenes for health in your everyday life. Reggie Godino of Steep Hill on the cannabis genome. And Jeff Lowenfels on the soil food web. There are several presentations from Dr. Ethan Russo on terpenes and the endocannabinoid system, and even my own presentation on how to approach finding your dream job in cannabis and why we choose cannabis business even though the risks are so high. As of today, there are over 100 videos that you can check out for absolutely free. Go to youtube.com forward slash shangolos or click on the link in this week's newsletter. Skinny dipping, humpback whales, beatnik poetry, the Ottoman Empire soil remediation, interdimensional beings, and tree frogs. These are just a few of the interesting topics you can find in the audiobooks library at audible.com. If you like podcasts like Shaping Fire, chances are that you'll dig audiobooks too. Just like with podcasts, audiobooks speak to you, telling you stories and teaching you stuff. Here's the thing. Audible.com has an offer I want to tell you about. Right now, they're offering a trial of their audiobook service for absolutely free. You can go to shapingfire.com forward slash audible and you will get a free audiobook straight up. You can listen to it on your mobile device, computer, or you can download it and listen to it like anywhere. It's really simple. Of course, they want you to subscribe to their service after the free trial and enjoy their audiobooks forever, but you don't have to. All you have to do to get the free audiobook of your choice is to check out the service for free. So that's the deal. 
Your first book is free. It's easy to sign up. It's easy to quit. And their online library of free books is pretty incredible. Just check it out. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash audible to find out more or click on the link in this week's newsletter. Cultivators who grow in living soil are very particular on what inputs they use in their soil. They educate themselves and painstakingly create compost and nutritive teas to create thriving soils that will produce the very best expression of the cannabis plant. Many living soil farmers now believe that, over time, seeds become acclimated to the kind of substrate they are grown in. For example, a seed that was bred in synthetic fertilizers may not immediately know what to do in a living soil environment, slowing their growth and decreasing yield. The Regenerative Seed Cooperative is a different kind of seed bank. The Regenerative Seed Cooperative only provide cannabis seeds that were bred in living soil and using probiotic growing techniques. That way, when you germinate in soil, the seed's genetics will recognize the environment and immediately start interacting with microbes and fungal networks. These seeds are described as bio-intelligent. The number of cannabis breeders participating in the Regenerative Seed Cooperative is rapidly increasing. Already signed on are Bamboos, Stock and Bean, Pacific Northwest Roots, LOS Gardens, Dragonfly Earth Medicine, ITAL Foundation, Bob Hemphill's Cricket and Cicada, Dutch Blooms, Heart Rock Mountain Farms Pride of Lion, Sebring Seeds, and Mount Baker Highway, with more being added every month. These seeds are regulars, autoflowers, and hemp varieties. A significant amount of the profits go to cannabis seed preservation projects available to everyone. Do you want to take every advantage that you can when growing in beautiful, healthy soil? Then consider buying your seeds from the Regenerative Seed Cooperative at regenerativeseeds.com. That's regenerativeseeds.com. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Los, and our guest this week is Jeremy Silva, founder of Build a Soil. So here we are at the third set. And so at this point, hopefully you pretty much understand where you need to go to be able to set up your first tent. And if you've been listening and you have a tent, hopefully you have figured out some new techniques um, to, um, you know, kind of dial things in a little bit more because, you know, we, we, we tend to have our strong parts about tents and our weak parts, and, and we just need to constantly be actively learning. This last set is going to be about things that are going to be common to many, but but folks getting into tents would probably consider them advanced techniques. So so once you've got your tent up and running and 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 everything we've already talked to up till now, you're feeling pretty confident about. Um, I would say let you you could start to consider some of some of these five things that we're going to talk about. So so Jeremy, let's let's talk about topping right right off the bat because. I like what you said earlier, which which actually kind of shivered me timbers when you're all like, oh, you know, why don't you try f- moving the plant to flower as soon as you transplant? And for me, I'm like, the plant, it's so small, but I want a lot of buds, right? And 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 you said, well, that way you know you're never going to run your plant into the into the light, right? And so I am one of those people who tends to let my plant grow a little probably longer than I should, and then... I'm dealing with um, it growing into light. And so for me, the only real solution I have is um, I top it um, while it's in veg and and just like straight up cut it down. But this scares the hell out of just about anybody who first starts doing it. So please go ahead and teach us topping. Oh, that's great. So there's two things um, to consider when topping. I don't top and I don't like it, but I do use it in a couple instances. 
the, the thing that you hit the nail on the head with is had you timed the flip to flower sooner, you would have not needed to top, which means that we burn nutrients and light we did not need. So it's more to consider than just the plant shape. Now, alternative to topping, there's other things we'll talk about where you can manipulate the hormones in the plant to provide the shape you're looking for if that's the main goal of topping. Where I use topping is similar to you. I've overdone it or they're mom plants or whatever the case is and I need to cut them back so I don't overdo it. That's not the advantageous way to top, but it's still the best way to manage your space. Now, most people when they consider topping, they're looking at the ultimate way to increase yield. I know that yield is related to the canopy and the light. It's not related to uh, having two tops instead of one. Um, the reason why two tops instead of one is more important is because your light is flat. So all that's, all that's important is filling the canopy. If you have the ability to put a hundred plants in a small space, you'll have a full canopy. You'll never need to top. You can flower immediately. If you have one plant and it's got to fill your entire canopy, you might want to top from the beginning. There are two methods that I typically talk about. One is called the FIM or fuck I missed. And that's typically when you have the very top of the plant, it's new leaf that's protruding at the very top when it's just being made. And it is a quarter inch tall. You get in there with scissors and you barely nip it. Sometimes you'll get three tops out of that, the pinnacle of the fem. Most of the time you get two. And you're removing very little plant material, a very small wound, and you're not really stunting the growth of the plant. Alternatively, if you wait too long and you're like, oh, wow, I should have topped it. The plant is a little too tall and you're building like this candelabra up top that gets lopsided. And so now you have to go down several inches or even further to the at, at a crotch. You don't want to just cut in the middle of a stalk because it will decay and it could be a, a wound. You want to cut near the crotch of a branch and that will allow it to be a little healthier. And so what people will do, well, they'll, they'll cut the whole top of the plant off. That's calling it topping. And when you cut the whole plant of the top off, you're removing a lot of biomass that took time to grow. And now there will be two tops, but I would have preferred to just bend it. That way you get to leave all of that biomass intact and still get the benefit of the shape. And so topping serves two purposes. One is to um, increase yield by getting more branching. And the second is to reduce excessive plant size and slow things down. In the second category, if you have a small container, you've already burned through nutrients that should have been there for flour. So take all these things in consideration. Um, in a large container, it almost doesn't matter. It just adds more time. And so, um, you know, kind of top at will, but don't be scared. Like if, if you've got a whole bunch of plants and you're sexing them, um, or you got a mom, I'll bonsai it. I'll cut entire plants down to literally one little leaf on all the branches and it'll grow back into a full raging mom plant within three or four weeks. So don't be scared. In fact, learn how far you can push it. But, um, there may not be a reason to top depending on what your needs are. Yeah, that's a great explanation. And, and, and it's true. I, I'm normally topping because I'm like, oh shit, I've, I've overgrown either my tent or my hoop or whatever, because, you know, I, I want my plants to be, I want to maximize my space. Right. But I, I tend to get greedy and then I, and then I have to top. Um, one of the things I really like though is, you know, for the folks who are topping to maximize their space because they want to be able to get rid of that one primary cola and instead make multiple colas, 
when I first saw scrogging, I'm like, oh, this is the solution that I was really looking for. And for folks who have not come across it, and I'm sure you're going to explain it better than I am, Jeremy, but but essentially you are going to uh, stretch a net um, about uh, a, you know a, a third of the way up from the bottom of the tent, and you're going to weave your plant as it's growing through this net. And the more your plant grows, the more you're going to weave so that your plants remain at a uniform height and they never grow up into the light. You can bring the light down to them. And so you've got this, you're creating this little field of big colas and it allows you to maximize your space because you can, you can weave them into the corners and uh, you can weave into empty space and you've got all these colas that more or less are getting even light. Um, what do you think? Was that a decent explanation? Yeah, great explanation. And that's the primary purpose of the, if in an indoor grow, your light is fixed and flat. To increase the yield versus that light, you'd want the flattest canopy possible from wall to wall covering your tent. To do that, the only terminology I would avoid using is the term weave ah. in the sense that you don't want to go above the screen and then through the holes in your screen because uh, as the branches grow, it can cause a little bit of damage. And what I do is I pull and tuck. Mm. So as the top branch hits the screen, instead of topping, what you'll do is you'll bend the top branch over two inches. And then as it grows through, you'll pull it back through the screen, move it over a couple inches. And what happens is the plant it knows where the top of the plant is, the apical or apical meristem, by sending the, these hormones there. And one of them that's talked about is auxin, and it's dominant there. When you top it, all of the hormones are now redistributed to the lower branches, and they shoot up in height. That's why people top. Most people don't know, though, that to get that effect of hormonal change, all you have to do is lower the apical meristem below one of the other branches. Gravity affects the oxen. It will lower it to the bottom of the branch. It'll curve back up on its own. So if you bend it away from the screen, all of the lower branches are going to shoot up on their own. Wow. And so it's amazing. You can not top, bend and bend and bend, and the entire plant will – you'll see the top from the middle of, the, of your container all the way to the side of the tent. But you'll also see every lateral branch reaching to the screen fully filled in. Now, if your top really gets away from you – and it never bushed out, maybe because there wasn't enough nutrients or enough light and they were kind of bean poles, topping will speed up that process. Um, so if everything's healthy and, and growing fast, all you have to do is bend it over. Now, if if bending over is not quite enough, you need it to like really be lowered below the other branches so that the branches shoot up with those hormones. What we do is called super cropping. We will actually bend and pinch the stalk in two or three locations and gently bend it over folded like a broken straw or a piece of cardboard so that it flops. That will temporarily shift all the hormones to the lower branches until that top recovers in growth and resumes its place as the main top. If you do this every three or four days until all the lower branches are even, it will never go back to a top plant again. The, the top will now become the same as all the others. 
And if you're thinking about going into scrogging, this is absolutely something that is best taught with video. So um, yeah. it is. Yeah. There, there are so many scrogging videos out there. Do not hesitate to go to YouTube and just put in scrog, S-C-R-O-G, and you will find way more than you need. Um, but yep. that, that really is the place to learn this because it's, it's vi- really a visual sport. So scrog means screen of green. It was the technology used instead of the sea of green coined by Michael Wolf Siegel. And when you add the scrog, you're kind of mimicking this plant density without having to have so many plants underneath it. So it's very conducive to a three plant count, six plant count. But now you use the screen to manage the canopy to be even across your entire grow platform. When you research topping, you're going to find mainlining and bending branches to this perfect shape. Although it's fun, it takes a lot of time. And so just having more plants is the fastest way to the uh, glory land, so to speak. But um, plant count can be an issue. So consider that. You don't have to do any of this if you're not worried about plant count. Just plant a whole bunch and you'll be there faster. So let's talk a little bit about nutrition education sources because, you know, like to – you can study cannabis plant nutrition joyfully the rest of your life. Um, but what I think is important is making sure you have good sources. Certainly there are, are several good books out there um, from, from nutrition for the beginner all through all the way through like, you know, advanced microbe life. And so you can, you can read for the rest of your life. I also happen to love the probiotic farmers Alliance on Facebook. Um, you know, in, in the old days that it, it was this like a, uh, you know, kind of, uh, uh, intimate group of eight or 10,000 folks. And it's, it's blossomed to 35,000 now. So the quality of your information, you got to make sure you're listening to the right people, but the probiotic farmers Alliance on Facebook is also good. Uh, Jeremy, what are some of your sources for nutrition education that you like to recommend to people? I really like to read books. Maybe that's not everyone's favorite way. And I think that when we, one book that changed my life was Masanobo Fukuoka, his one straw revolution. The reason why I think it's an important read is it's a philosophy book more than a practice, like a how-to. And one of the things you you glean from this is every time I want to get too scientific in understanding everything, I'm reminded of how successful he was by implementing being a steward of nature instead of trying to control it. And so what I mean by that is the simplicity can create unbelievable success and it is kind of balanced by the fact that you're going to want to learn everything and that's not so important. So reading books, I really like that one straw revolution is great. And then when you look at the next topics you have to consider would be if I just read an organic book, they'll probably talk about compost, how to make compost and compost tea, and then general organic amendments. Those are great and they will keep you busy for a long time. The next realm that people go down the rabbit hole on is soil testing. Um, there's a book called the ideal soil by Michael Estera, and there's another one called the intelligent gardener by Steve Solomon. Both of them are excellent primers on doing a soil test and finding balance. Now, what I'll say is you don't have to get this perfect, but if you did do a soil test on a lot of potting soil that you wanted to keep, it's not that much money. And if you can just balance the main weaknesses like excessive sodium or potassium or chloride, or maybe just knowing that a little calcium would really balance things. That can be a dramatic game changer, especially when you're depending on that production. Um, other than that, I really like just picking up old gardening books like Ruth Stout and her No Work Gardening. Um, it'll really make you believe in thinking about how to do things that are simpler but produce really good results. Um, 
And then we have a little bookstore at Build-A-Soil where we kind of put our favorite books that we've read. I think those sources oftentimes teach you how to critically think, where oftentimes in the garden, we need to go on social media to get a specific answer that's timely right now so that we can at least move on. So balance those two so that you don't need so many urgent needs. Um, a lot of people read the um, Teeming with Microbe series. There's so many good ones out there. Yeah, I'll second the Teeming with Microbe series. The uh, Teeming with Microbes, Teeming with Nutrients, and then Teeming with Fungi. Um, those books are where I learned my vocabulary that I kind of needed to start moving into the other books. Uh, Jeff Lowenfels, the author, he, um, he's got a good uh, ability to simplify things for everybody, um, but giving you real actual science, which probably comes from him, you know, writing a gardening column for 45 years. But the, I, I will second your, your teaming with. And also on the other end of the scale, once you've exhausted all of your books, um, there's a great new certification I like from Elaine Ingham that she's just launched on her website. Um, it's a, a few thousand dollars to do it, but um, you know, it's it's the kind of education that once you have a certification, you could actually start, you know, professionally, um, you know, professionally consulting for other folks. So great. So so there are a whole bunch of excellent nutrition resources for you to consider as you get more into it. Let's talk a little bit about polyculture. I think there's quite a few reasons why polyculture is fun. And for those who are new to the word, um, polyculture is uh, just simply means you have more than one plant growing in your substrate. It's what nature is, right? All the, all the plants are all growing together in the same soil. It allows them to communicate about what pests are present. It allows them to share uh, nutrients and uh, microbe life uh, beneath it. But also when I have it in, when I have um, other plants that are in my tent, sure, I've got, I've got short grasses because I'm really into living green mulches uh, because it keeps the top of the soil more moist. Um, but really, I also just love flowers, right? The tent looks good when there are flowers in it. It makes me happier to tend it. What are your thoughts, Jeremy? Man, I, I agree with everything you're saying. The only caveat that I'll put on that is you mentioned Elaine Ingham recently, and we've talked about compost tea. This was a huge topic that we went through for a long time. I bought microscopes. I did dissolved oxygen, altitude adjusted, temperature adjusted. I've bought all sorts of different meters beyond that just to figure out how to make the best compost tea following Ingham and Tim Wilson and um, uh, the Husey's and, and really going down the rabbit hole. And what I want to share with you, maybe incorrect, maybe I'll change my mind, but I think that if you implement regenerative agriculture and um, companion plants and cover crops and worms and predator mites, all of the biology will take care of itself despite you. And nature will find a way. That's how nature's done it forever. And almost like if you, for instance, um, if you've seen that movie, The Littlest Big Farm, I think it's called. Yeah. When they wanted to get owls at the property to help with a problem they had, they just put up a birdhouse. They didn't try to construct an owl. And if you build the home for the microbes and you put in the cover crop and you use these practices that nature uses, you will have an unbelievable biology because we have so much control. We have a great environment, good inputs. It's going to be incredible. Um, the only caveat to that is if you just overwater like crazy, you can go anaerobic. And there are some concerns there, but for the most part, if you use cover crop, it's going to be significantly harder to overwater and you can leverage these tactics to help you. So I like 
cover crop because they're typically types of plants that fix nitrogen and improve soil. And there's a number of them you can research. All of them will work. Don't freak out about which one. Indoors, I will say the main limiting factor is try and find stuff like you don't want a three foot tall nitro radish that's going to grow in your container, right? You want maybe clover and grasses and um, things like that that won't overtake. Worst case, if it takes anything over, just chop it down and feed it back to the worms in your container. It's not going to be a problem. Um, We have a cover crop recipe that we made at Build a Soil. It's been really popular, but I would say that what led me to building that blend was having diversity. So we have 12 different seeds, lots of clovers and different things. Some people use one type of seed and find great success, but I think that building a biological community in there, diversity, 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 and you'll have a really good result. Buy all your favorite seeds, grow radishes, grow lettuce. The only caveat with food is that sometimes food requires a little more attention, and if you have no airflow and light down there, it may like have rotten lettuce where beets might do great, so um, or radishes. So consider those things, right? Your primary crop is primary. Everything else is secondary. Absolutely. And you know, Jeremy, I know you and I share a love of, of having flowers alongside our cannabis. And I've heard you wax philosophic and poetic about flowers before. Why don't you give us a little bit of that? Um, uh, something about it. I think that obviously there's a beauty there and there's a lot of philosophy around just the beauty of flowers and awakening and all that. But when you look at a garden, there's this certain connective nature that we have where it's been around forever. And I think that's why humans are gravitated towards it. So when you have an indoor oasis that's created and you walk in and peak flower, especially in a bigger grow room, grow room where there's lights crossing over each other and the cover crops growing out the side and it's lush and it's weaving its way down and there's pink clover flowers and there's flax vining up the bottom and shooting flowers off next to your cannabis flowers. It almost puts you in that Garden of Eden type feeling. And there's something that's so natural there that's so pervasive like into everybody's mind. It will it just gets you. And I think that's why a lot of people kind of make fun of the cover crops is they think we just do it because it's pretty or because it looks cool or we want to be cooler than our friends. But realistically, when you understand that it can move water around, uh, keep your soil tilled and provide biology and sugars and fix nitrogen, um, there's a lot of reasons to do it. It's just that the beauty of it is, is really half the fun. Damn straight. All right, let's finish on this last topic. So once you have become, uh, you know, maybe not an expert in your tent grows, but that you're, you're you know, you're not crashing your tent grows and, and you decide that you want to expand, um, a lot of people like to move to keeping a separate veg tent and bloom tent. Um, while it's fantastic to be able to have your tent and and veg and then just simply change the light cycle and now you're flowering in the same tent, that's fantastic for space concerns. But you know, if you are, say for example, a patient and you need to be able to constantly be making um, uh, cannabis oil for yourself to get relief, um, or you know, maybe if you're just like a serious toker, right? And you go through a lot of flour, a lot of people like to expand to a second tent and have, have one dedicated to vegging and keeping the cultivars that you like so you don't have to get cuts from your friends and 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 you can really hone you know you can keep the phenos that you particularly like of seeds and then your other tent is just constantly blooming and that way you can you know you can you can harvest some plants while other ones are earlier in bloom what are your thoughts on having uh two tents jeremy i personally think it's the only way to go um and there's a number of key reasons you hit on the first one is that this will take the focus off maximizing yield 
Because if you focus on maximizing quality, yield will come, especially cultivar dependent. Now, if you are only having one tent, that means that you're going to grow them to a certain size. You're going to turn the timer down to 12 hours a day or less so that it triggers them into flower. And if you understand that, you know that now flowering is going to take 60 to 90 days, depending on the cultivar, some sooner. And um, then beyond that, you're going to have to have, after you harvest, now grow more vegging plants, switch back. That takes time before you're ever going to flower again. Because of that, that means your yield needs to be higher, especially if you're going through it. The second problem is that means that you're only going to be relying on those flavors that you're able to grow for that longer period of time. And when you're a heavy cannabis user, um, having different cultivars is paramount. And the reason why is that even if you have your favorite, it will dull itself on the way that it interacts with your brain. And having a different strain will increase the effect and going back and forth between two, three, or four can dramatically improve the way that you medicate as far as being a productive person and having different plants. So once you start to get that dialed in, having two tents means that you can now be perpetually flowering like you said. What that looks like is creating your plants that are gonna go in the flower room and the flower room is ever on a 12 hour, it's always on 12 hours, which means that no matter what, when you put a plant in there, it's gonna start to flower. I will say that that's attractive because in your small space, you can have one finishing flower while another one is just starting. I will say nature does not do it that way. And the hormones that they put off next to each other and the chaos of having multiple plants at many different age cycles, while worth it, is more challenging. And mm -hmm. so I've had a lot of success having containers where one's finishing flowering, the next one moves to its spot, and it's done in two more weeks. And you harvest a plant every week or two. Here's what that leads to. It leads to poor drying and curing because you always need that next plant because you never had enough and you're tasting the lowers and tr finally waiting for it to dry and now you got to wait two more weeks. Just get a big harvest and then get another plant going right after that in two tents and you will actually be able to do a slow dry, get it right, have the best medicine with constant flavor changes and instead of going perpetual, you can actually shut your flower down, room down, clean it completely spick and span and you can move veg plants in there and veg for a week if you want in their new home, or you can switch right to flower. I think having that cycle is better than perpetual because it leads to consistent success. Consistent success is bigger is a bigger uh, bigger yield because you don't have a problem cycle. Well said, and and um, you know I I have never given as much thought as as I just heard from you about the idea of having plants in flower um, at different parts of the cycle because you're right I know that the plants are constantly talking to each other with uh, with 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 terpenes and and other other subtle botanical chemicals and if and if one thinks it's October and the other plant thinks it's September um, I can see how that could cause some, yeah. you know, biochemistry confusion. There may be nothing there and I could be overthinking it, but one of the tenets of successful natural farming is to try to mimic nature. This invariably leads to the joke, well, why don't you just throw a seed in your backyard and see what nature does with it? And I've had success doing that. I admit we can be better stewards. So it's not just completely being blind to that, but, um, there's something there when you start to observe nature and internalize that for your own benefit. 
So one last thing, what do you think about, um, you know, now that there are decent autoflower seeds out there, what do you think about, you know, if you have room in your veg tent to be running an autoflower in there as well? Since, you know, if you've got your veg tent at 18.6, um, an autoflower is happy to uh, grow up, mature, and flower in 18.6. It seems to be a good use of space if folks have got it. And, um, and I've tried it a few times and I like it. What are your thoughts? It's so much fun. Flowers everywhere. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Especially when it's ancillary. It's extra. It's not like what you have to be perfect. Now, autoflowers have come a long way. They're so much fun to grow. There's reasons for them. It used to be that people villainized them because it, they had to be basically hemp somewhere in its background, which supposedly would lower the potency, and I understand that. But now that we know more about hemp and we know more about plants, we know that this could be great. It could have more CBD right away in an autoflower and have this balance. But the challenge I had is you can't clone them, which means you can't keep your favorite if you find it, which yeah. leads to sadness sometimes. Yes, it does. Alternative to that, you might pop 100 seeds and they could – every single one. One of them might be a three-ounce plant. The next one might have one gram. And that frustration can lead to me saying, hey, throw a couple in your veg tent and have a blast because now you're not dependent upon it. And the other consideration is where I live here in Colorado, all the hemp is going crazy, which means you cannot grow outdoor anymore because of the pollen, but you can grow light depth or autoflower, pull them down before any pollen is flying and leverage the free sun. And that's incredible. Fantastic. Well, Jeremy, this has been a really great episode. This is, this is, this is a beautiful snapshot to get people going intense. Thank you so much for sharing your time and vast experience with us. Oh, you're welcome. This is really fun. And a lot of times in the day to day, you forget how many of these questions uh, were, were really the most important thing when we first got started. Yeah, absolutely. So if you want to uh, find out more about Jeremy Silva and Build-A-Soil, uh, there's two really great places to go. Um, first and foremost is their website at buildasoil.com. So that's build a soil.com. And then, um, I got to tell you, uh, Jeremy's Instagram is easily one of my favorite three in the whole scene because he spends a lot of time, uh, doing videos from the shop with these fantastic side-by-side tent grows. I learned so much and I learned how so much I'm doing wrong, uh, from these videos. I highly recommend that you check that out their Instagram at build and, um, and, and he also let me know that, um, coming up here in March, he's got a 12 episode series, actually very similar to, uh, this episode you're listening to where he's going to go through all the key aspects of building a tent. And I believe that they're all like 30, uh, 30 minutes or so each. So that's buildasoil.com and at buildasoil on Instagram. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the weekly newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news and product reviews. On the Shaping Fire website, you will also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. For information on me and where I'll be speaking, you can check out shangolos.com. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Lose.